This presentation of In Their Own Words is brought to you by The Honor Project and is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. Hi, I'm Rob Lahani from The Honor Project. Thanks for joining us for Season 2 of Warriors In Their Own Words. For these new episodes, along with the veteran interviews, we decided to add a few personal impressions of these heroic individuals who we were fortunate enough to talk to. This episode is about the birth of combat helicopters. Back in 1944, aviation pioneer Igor Sikorsky supplied the U.S. Army with a handful of his new helicopters. The Army designated the aircraft the YR-4 and trained four pilots to fly these new and somewhat unpredictable machines in the jungles of Burma. Lieutenant Carter Harmon was one of these first pilots. I sat across from Harmon at his home in Carmel, California back in 1991 to put this hero of our nation on record and to hear how he performed the world's first helicopter combat rescue mission. First of all, I was a uh, civilian pilot when I was still in college. There was a program called Civilian Pilot Training Program, sponsored by the government before the war. And uh, I went through two courses of that. And uh, when it became clear that there was a war, I volunteered for the Air Corps and went through cadets, became a twin-engine pilot and then an instructor in basic flying training in Texas. And uh, so I had some pretty good experience. If you try to teach something, you know, you learn pretty well what it is you're doing. And that's a very good training, I think, for anybody. And a little while later, I was lucky to hear a, a call for volunteers for helicopters. The call was anybody under 150 pounds want to volunteer for helicopters. So I volunteered and a list came through with my name on it. 30, 30 pilots had volunteered. There were eight positions open and we were told to report to a hotel room in Fort Worth the next Thursday and I flew down there. They gave me a plane and uh, we were all stacked in this sweaty hotel room and then there's captains and people who looked like they had a lot of experience and I, I felt very much like a musician, which I had been, and uh, l less and less like a, a pilot who was going to win a, a position as a helicopter in the helicopter program. At this meeting, Harmon was interviewed by the legendary pilot Colonel Philip Cochran. Cochrane was looking for volunteers to fly helicopters with an experimental force called Project 9, which would later become known as the 1st Air Commando Group. Cochrane and his commandos were operating behind enemy lines in Burma, aiding the British effort against the Japanese. The interviewer was Philip Cochrane, Colonel Cochrane. He was a hot pursuit pilot and had a very big reputation. And he said there was going to be a dangerous mission, but I didn't know that there was an outfit being formed and that that's what I was going to become part of. I just thought we were going to learn how to fly helicopters and then be assigned somewhere. But it turned out we were already in Project 9, which became the 1st Air Commando Group. And that was why it was dangerous. 
Cochran had told some of the people who survived that interrogation that uh, he expected a 50% casualty rate. Well, I asked one of them what, what he thought then, and he said, well, I didn't believe him. He said, because nobody in his right mind is going to go into, a, a, into an operation where there will be 50% casualties. You don't do that if, you're, if you've got your wits about you, and Cochrane impressed him as, and me as a person who certainly had his wits about him. And it turned out, of course, that the helicopters had, uh, the helicopter pilots had a 75% casualty rate. But uh, when I did talk to Colonel Cochrane, who was there with a party and inter interviewing every one of us, taking notes, uh, he looked at me askance when I told him that I'd been a musician and, and uh, told me that it was a dangerous assignment and I didn't believe him. I thought, well, I thought he meant that it was that helicopters were uh, underdeveloped and were, it would be dangerous flying them. And uh, the last thing he asked me was that I have any previous flying experience before the war. And I said, yes. He said, why the hell did you tell me? And I, I said, she didn't ask me, sir. <laughs> but that was a, a foot in the door, and, I, and that, I think, was what they were looking for. So I, about, oh, almost three months later, the call came through and I was flown to Bridgeport to the Sikorsky factory and there were eight of us there and four um, crew chiefs and we all went through a month's ground training and then the eight of us were reduced to four because it was taking too long they said and the four of us learned how to fly helicopters and then came the news about where we were going which was it shouldn't have been a surprise because I had been inoculated for a semi-tropical climate. We had been. But uh, it didn't seem to me that what we were flying was going to do go into any kind of a forward zone. It was a, a trainer made of canvas and pipes and called the YR-4. And the Y part of that is a, sort of a disclaimer by the Air Force, the Army Air Corps at that time which comes right after the, uh, the, the letter X. The letter X means experimental. The letter Y means that it's been accepted, but they're not quite sure it'll work. And so that was what the designation of this aircraft was, YR-4. And in fact, what we flew overseas was the YR-4B. And that had a bigger engine, 175 horsepower Warner radial engine in the compartment right behind the pilot with a firewall in between, but it didn't stop the noise. Helicopters were still new at that point. What, how did you know what a helicopter was? What was your impression of what a helicopter was? Well, Sikorsky was the only uh, American who had succeeded in getting a production, going into production. But everybody had seen the VS-300, which was, which was uh, Sikorsky's uh, experimental model that changed every time he crashed, which was frequently. And they just rebuild it and fly it the next day and see if that worked any better. And it's, you know, it's a hilarious story now. And you see pictures of it flopping over on its back and Sikorsky himself with his fedora hat falling out onto the ground. <laughs> and uh, everybody had seen that. It was in all the Sunday, Sunday supplements and everything. And everybody had also seen Hannah Reich, uh, the German test pilot 
flying the, uh, the Focke Wolf. Uh, it was a twin rotor machine with rotors on the outriggers, and she flew it inside of a uh, an armory every night for three weeks. And it was, you know, a colossal impression that that made on everybody in the world. Everybody knew about that, and so we knew that helicopters were coming along and and uh, probably available soon. But that's all we knew. And so uh, I thought, well, it's a new thing. I did consult with a, an old pilot before I left Texas, before I made my, made my volunteering uh, final. And he said, hell yes. He said, get into anything you can, especially a new machine. You get in on the ground floor, and you, who knows, it might make a whole new career for you. So that's what I thought I was doing. <laughs> what thoughts were running through your mind when you first saw this uh, YR4 and sitting there on the <laughs> ramp? Well, I thought the first time I saw that machine that it would never fly. But then the next time I saw it, it was flying, you know, and uh, it looked like a grasshopper. It really looked more like a grasshopper than anything else. The wheel struts stick out from the sides, akimbo, like that, with long telescoping struts, shock absorbers. And, uh, it, you know, most airplanes look like they're, they want to fly. And to me and all of us, the helicopter looked like it wanted to jump. And that was... <laughs> Yeah, that was a joke that we didn't think was serious, but it turned out later that we had to jump it. That was one of the big problems that came up in India. But when I got into it, you know, it was a, very much like getting into any airplane for the first time, aircraft for the first time. Uh, it's amazement that, at how flimsy it is and how powerful it is when it starts to go, how scarily, you know, how much tremendous energy there is flying around in there. And when the rotor starts to go overhead, you think, and it starts to whistle, and you think that's pretty amazing that, it, that this is going to pick you up. And then it disappears. As it gets up to speed, it turns into a sort of a blur. And that was pretty scary for a fixed-wing pilot to get off the ground and hover and look up and there's nothing, or out, and there's nothing holding you up felt very bad, very, very queasy. And then they gave us the, uh, Jimmy Wiener was our instructor, and he gave us all a, 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 an orientation ride first. So we piled into the right-hand seat, which is the one we were going to fly from, and he flew from the left-hand seat. We both had duplicate sticks, uh, it was called the cyclical pitch stick. And uh, as soon as the and the, 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 I'm sorry, but we had the duplicate cyclical pitch sticks, and between the seats was the extended collective pitch stick with a throttle, a motorcycle grip, and the end of it for the throttle, and pedals as usual. Well, as soon as we got off or applied any power, any lift to the blades, to the rotor, as soon as we got off the ground and applied lift to the rotor, the cyclical pitch stick started to rotate between your knees, both of them, at the same rate of speed as the, as the rotor was, 300 times a minute or something like that. And you could put both hands against that thing and clamp it between your knees and you couldn't stop it. The whole thing was just going around. It was a tremendous force on it. And the joke was, well, the truth was that when, when the gyration got down to two inches in diameter, you thought you were really you really had a good ship. 
I went back to Sikorsky's after the war, and they were already flying some very fancy power control helicopters. And Jimmy was still around, and he said, do you remember the, how the stick used to go around? And I said, I certainly do. <laughs> i never forget that. He said, well, you don't have to worry about that anymore because it's all controlled by, by hydraulics and all the power assists. And uh, he says, you can, you can fly a helicopter now with two fingers. Before we had to hold on to this thing to make sure that it, we were, it would do what we wanted it to, you never dared let go of the controls. You never dared take your eye off the horizon, which is all you could fly by. There weren't any instruments, any flight instruments. You had to fly uh, by, the, by orientating yourself to the, to the ground. I was smoking in those days, and uh, I once decided that I was flying solo and had some time on my hands, and so I, I decided to have a cigarette. So I got out my cigarette and the matches, and I put the stick between my knees, clamped it between my knees, and watched it and got the match lit, took my eyes off it, lit the cigarette, and put my hand back on the stick, and we were in a steep diving turn. <laughs> That's how un unstable it was, a totally unstable machine. You could not let it out of your attention for a, a second. Couldn't. <laughs> and of course, the, uh, the other terrifying thing uh, at the, the beginning of all of this was when we came in for the first landing, because we got 300 feet in the air, and we came down at about a 60-degree slope, and the airspeed dropped right down to zero while I watched in horror, because in an airplane, of course, you, you, you watch that airspeed to keep it up or it'll stop flying. But of course, the wings in a, in a helicopter or any rotary wing machine fly no matter how fast the body of the ship is flying because they're going around. So that was all, you know, we, we swallowed all that pretty, pretty easily. We're all young, you know. And uh, the most difficult thing after getting used to this, the fact that it actually would fly and the fact that it was making a terrible racket the whole time with the engine back here clanging and battering and the rotor whistling up above, uh, the worst thing was learning how to hover. And learning how to hover is sort of like learning how to ride a bicycle at very slow speed. You can do it after a little practice. And what you first do is you get the, the ship in the, off the ground, and it's, everything is going full speed because that's what takes most power to hover or to go up. But hovering takes a lot of power. And what you try to do is to hold it still, and you're looking out at something out there trying to keep in position, and it starts to drift. There's a gust of wind or something moves you sideways, and so you correct, and zoom, off you go in the other, other direction, and then you come back. And we used to see these, this very dangerous being on the flight st strip during those days, because the, these things would be zooming all over the place, People, the pilots, the student pilots, overcorrecting. How many were in existence at this time? Well, they were making them at the rate of about eight a month. That's what I figured. There were eight on the, on the production line. And they, they came off a couple of times, three times a week. And you learned to do this at Bridgeport, Connecticut? And that was in Sikorsky factory. We were taught by Sikorsky's nephew. And uh, that was in Bridgeport, Connecticut, down by the 
Long Island Sound, and our practice area was a beach that had once been a, an amusement park or something, and it was all gone. So we did everything out there. It was about a mile long. The, the uh, landing field was the backyard, factory backyard, had a fence covered with cinders, and when a plane, when a helicopter would come in for a landing, the cinders would fly. So you had to get out of the way, not to get blown. Did you uh, deal with uh, Igor Sikorsky at all? Or? Yes, Sikorsky met us when we first arrived, and he was a very cordial guy, a very intelligent man, and he had a twinkle in his eye. And he told us that what he saw as the future of helicopters was safety and rescue, casualty evacuation or med medical evacuation. And his little saying, which has he has said in many on many occasions, was, "If you're in an airplane and somebody's in trouble on the ground, all you can do is throw a wreath on him. And if you're in a helicopter, you can go down and get him." So that was it. We were, I mean, we knew the whole time this was not going to be a combat machine. I was terribly shocked when Vietnam came along and I saw that they were shooting from it and dropping bombs and things and going into combat uh, because it seemed to me that the logical thing for helicopters was rescue and or evacuation. And that's what we were there for. There's no question about that. I saw my role as, as being a uh, uh, an angel of mercy. And I like that. I mean, I didn't, I certainly didn't want to shoot anybody or be shot at even more, perhaps. <laughs> we, we all felt that we had a chance to make history, you know, that we, that we, that nobody had ever rescued anybody in this machine and that was what it was for. So that if that was indeed what it was going to, the, the history would be of helicopters, uh, we had a chance really to show what it could do. And we all talked about that all the time. We thought, it would be wonderful to do that. I don't think any of us as instructors, you know, we hadn't been indoctrinated thoroughly in the war mentality. We were busy teaching people to fly and learning ourselves. So that we, we didn't, the killing wasn't something that we were, any of us interested in or cared for. So one by one, all of my colleagues went over disappeared, in fact, because there was a lot of military uh, security in operation and that, and that they wouldn't tell us when we were going to go. But I knew by then that we were waiting for the uh, C-46, the Curtis Commando, which is the biggest twin-engine airplane in the world and the only one to that date which could accommodate a helicopter in its body with a Actually, it was the size of the of the cargo door that was big enough to take a helicopter, and uh, that that was so new that it still had a lot of bugs in it. It had it had fuel problems and it had electrical problems. And one of the ones that one of the ones that was carrying a helicopter had a runaway propeller, and, and another one crashed, and we never nobody ever found out what happened. But uh, all of my friends got over overseas, and I got letters or communiques back saying, bring booze, the stuff you get over here is terrible, but Project 9 is a hot outfit and you'll love it. <laughs> well, I wasn't so sure because it sounded pretty primitive, the, the accommodations and all of that. But it turned out, of course, that we took our trainer 
which was short-ranged and underpowered and without any armor or armament and took it overseas to a semi-tropical climate, which was India, to support the British. Yeah, I got there on March 16, 1944. Where we went when I was picked up by the finally in a C-46 uh, of the Air Transport Command, we went to the, the field, which is farthest north in India, which was a bit of a surprise to us. We didn't open our orders until we were almost there. We knew we were going to India, but we didn't know where in India, even. And uh, the place was called Chabua. And at Chabua, somebody had heard of Project 9, and they figured out that it was in southern Assam, which was across a range of mountains about uh, 300 miles away. So we flew down there uh, and made contact with the uh, the radio there, which was called Red Dog, and landed at Lalagat, southern Assam, northeastern India. Southern Assam is now partly Bangladesh, northern Assam, which is above the uh, mountain range, is is uh, still completely India. And Burma was about. 200 miles, well, 100 and something miles to the east, and the places where we might be expected to make a rescue or a pickup with a helicopter were about 200 miles east, due east, over a very, <clears throat> a very tall range of mountains and uh, enemies. The Japanese were in there by that time. So we are now in, uh, in the jungle. We're uh, operating with the first air commandos. And uh, you get your helicopter there, how? The helicopters arrived aboard the C-46s, and were, at that point were in two pieces, or three pieces if you count the blades. Uh, the front section, which, was, which had the cockpit and the engine in it, and the rear section, which was the, the long tail, which housed the tail rotor. And that had to be unloaded and carted to the engineering area in Lalagat and put back, reconstituted as a, as a flying helicopter. And that was what we had all learned. We'd all taught, been taught how to take this thing apart, and uh, the ground crew knew how to put it back together. And so we all pitched in and helped and uh, put them together and test hopped them. Well, the, f the first pilot casualties were Pete Turney and Bert Powell, who was his buddy, and they took the, one of these uh, newly as assembled helicopters on a test hop and ran into a wire. They were having a good time, and there was, they had telegraph wires on poles running around the field, and they were hard to see, very light wires. And they hooked that on there with their wheels and crashed. And Bert was killed, and Pete was and broke broke his ankle, I believe, and had some uh, some damage in his upper part of his body, and couldn't fly anymore. We started with eight, which were immediately reduced to four, and so now we had two. Well, one day Bob Beeman was flying a C-64 into and out of Aberdeen, which was the name of one of these big fortified strips in Burma and he flew too low over an enemy position and a bullet came through the bottom of the plane, went through his co-pilot's ankle, through his parachute and the bottom of his seat 
and through his right thigh and then all the way across his belly and landed in his left thigh and stayed there. And he was unconscious, but the co-pilot, who was, who was a flight surgeon, got the plane on the ground safely at Aberdeen. And they patched him up and took him to the hospital in another C-64. And uh, that was the 75% pilot casualty rate. There was one left. That was me. We were all still, still talking about what we were going to do if there was a mission assigned to the helicopters. We were quite sure that it would take place somewhere around Aberdeen because that's where all the action was. That's where all the light planes were flying into and out of to pick up casualties farther forward. So we could see right away when we looked at the charts that we were not going to fly the helicopters directly over the mountains into Aberdeen because it was 200 miles. The helicopter range was 120 miles. The uh, alternative <clears throat> was to make a, a big loop around through the northern part of India and make a U-shaped flight that would bring it down partway into Burma to another one of our little airstrips which had light planes on it called Taro. And from Taro to Aberdeen was only 120 miles, but the range of the helicopter was also 120 miles, and you don't do that. You don't arrive with an empty tank. <laughs> and, and so we were at an impasse. We didn't know what to do. We thought of an auxiliary tank, and we couldn't figure out how to do that. Uh, we thought we would probably take four Jeep tanks, which held 20 gallons, which was our tank capacity. And we'd land and pour in gas along the route. But the last leg was over enemy territory. There was a huge dry lake there called Lake Indoji. And these light plane guys, who were daredevils anyway, flying sergeants, had landed in the middle of Lake Indoji, perhaps not knowing that it was a staging area for the invasion of India. And they took off without any particular damage. Didn't do anything there, they just went to see what it was like. But Lake Indoji was only about two miles wide and it was about five miles long. And I figured somebody with a cannon, or somebody with a jeep even, could get to me before I could pour any gas in and get along. So we remained with that impasse. Meanwhile, having put together some more helicopters, we found out the other things that were wrong with it, which were, A, that it couldn't hover at an altitude above about maybe 5,000 feet. And hovering is necessary because you make a zero airspeed landing. You come straight down and, and take off straight up. So you have to be able to hover in order to land. 5,000 feet was the very best we could do in the, in the hot air. The second thing that became aware as the weather got hotter in April was that we, we would lift off the ground and hover for the initial takeoff, which is a, just was routine. You just did that to see if it was going to fly, and it would stop. The engine simply gave up, and the ship plumped down onto the ground, no damage, but it was not running. And that was very scary, and we couldn't figure We took the engines apart, couldn't figure out what it was all about. And meanwhile, also in the heat of that part of the world at that time, we couldn't take off with a passenger on board. We didn't have enough power. Well, there was a tech rep there from Sikorsky's technical representative. And he said, it's the temperature which is 
causing a temperature altitude problem. In other words, the, when the temperature in a dry season gets to be 100 degrees, which it was every day, your relative altitude is something like 3,000 feet. And that became a marginal area for us, and we couldn't take off with two people at 3,000 feet or on our ground, at our ground level. So even if we got into Burma, we couldn't pick anybody up. The engines were okay, and we didn't know what it was until Arnold Podolsky, the tech rep, said, You're, that's the same problem. The oxygen content of the air has diminished with the thinning in the heat. And the engine is dying, uh, is strangling. And the way to solve that is to jump the air, aircraft off the ground as high as you can, 25 or 30 feet into the air, without pausing for a hover, and start going forward as fast as you can, because as soon as you start moving forward, you get more lift out of the rotor, and you get more oxygen coming through the air scoop into the engine, and she'll run. And it did. <laughs> but that wasn't really any particular solace to any of us, because it meant we had to run it into the red. We had to over we had to over rev the limits. We were not advised to turn it up that high. <laughs> so we did anyway. And Arnold said, "Well, you know, these red lines are mostly just guidelines, and uh, you can do it 10 percent as long as you don't do it all the time." <laughs> and we had to do it more than 10 percent, and we did have to do it all the time. So that was what we were faced with. So this machine that didn't have enough range couldn't do anything if it got there without special treatment, which was dangerous. And that's what happened, of course. When the time came, uh, the wire came in from Aberdeen and said, send the egg beater to Taro. I don't know who sent that, whether it was Cochrane or somebody else. But anyway, something had happened. This was it. And you know, there wasn't anything except to send me, and I was not feeling very well. I was wheezing with asthma. I'm not supposed to do that, but I wasn't even supposed to be in the Air Corps with asthma, but I didn't tell them that. And uh, so I went and got a prescription from the uh, palliative from the medical department, and early the next morning I took off. Four cans of Jeep gas beside me, and three stops in India, and one taro in Burma. It was about, that part of the trip was about 400 miles, which was already farther than, as far as we knew, anybody had ever flown a helicopter. The only helicopter who had flown any kind of long distance was one that went to Wright Field, and that was flown by Les Morris, who flew along in short, easy hops and had a couple of trucks full of spare parts. <laughs> going along on the ground underneath him. <laughs> so, and we didn't have that, didn't have that luxury. So uh, the first place I had to land was a British airstrip, and we weren't sure whether it was in the hands of the British or the Japanese, because they were right up the road from there by that time, and they should have come down. That was the next place for them to hit. So I steered away from that and landed in a, in a tea garden tea plantation, and poured the gas in, took off again, went to an airstrip, 
called Jorhat, where they were flying B-24s, American base, and almost killed myself because I decided to show off and I landed in front of the tower, um, not thinking of the dust. It was not paved there. And as soon as I got down to hovering altitude, this dust blew up like being in the middle of a, of a fog bank. I couldn't see anything, couldn't see any horizon, anything to keep my ship level or not moving, and the tower was right there. Um, so what I did was to pull up. I wasn't going to risk trying to get down. <laughs> and I pulled up, and I went up straight up, fortunately, and back, got out of there, and landed on a paved part of the strip, shaking pretty badly. Wasn't scared, you know, I was just shaking. I don't think you get scared. You know, I've, I mean, everybody I've ever talked to or hear who has been in a combat situation or a perilous situation says, I don't think I was scared when that happened. I was scared later. And I don't know what that means. I'm not sure what fear really is. You're, you're really mostly afraid of the unknown, like if a monster with bug eyes is peeking around the corner, you can really get paralyzed. But you don't get paralyzed when you are flying something that flies, does what you want it to do pretty much. Even if you're going to fly over the enemy and you think you're going to might get shot at, you don't know what that means. You don't know enough to get scared, I think. So I was worried on that trip, wondering if everything was going to keep on working, if the engine was going to stop somewhere besides in the takeoff. And I did have a electrical problem on my second stop, which was Lido, a big, a big base where they flew the uh, hump run into China. And I had to stay overnight while they repaired the some frozen part, a relay or something was frozen in the, in the electrical system. And it took them all that time to figure out what it was and to replace it. And the next day I flew to Taro and I sat there most of the day. The, there was a radio call that somebody remembered one of these guys flying flying recklessly all over the place in these light planes. He said, oh yeah, I think we did. I think we did have a, you, your name is Harmon, right? And I said, yeah. He said, well, yeah, they did say something about somebody named Harmon to tell him to wait here. <laughs> the first air commandos flew bombers, fighters, and transport planes, but also light utility and liaison aircraft like the L-1 Vigilant and the L-5 Sentinel, built by the Stinson Aircraft Company. So I waited, and pretty soon in came an airplane, an L-5, with the group engineering officer on board, John Jeanette, his name was. And he looked at me with a beady eye, and he said, well, I think we can fix this thing up. And he says, there's a L-5 has crashed over here. We'll take the wing tank out of that, and we'll install it in the helicopter. He went took measurements, and sure enough, it fitted right over my head. And they lashed it in there with parachute shrouds and a hose coming down behind my back and went into the gas tank of the ship. And there was a petcock right back here, and by the time I got strapped into my seat, I could just barely reach the petcock, and they hadn't bothered to cork it up, and I hadn't thought about it enough, I guess, but if I turned it the wrong way, the gasoline would gush out of the third, <laughs> the third joint of the petcock, so I had to push with my thumb and pull with my fingers, and I tried to remember that. And the idea was that I would fly to the point of no return, or almost. 
So when Jeanette finished putting in the uh, auxiliary tank, that solved the range problem as long as you had enough power to lift all that extra gasoline, which is about weighed about as much as a man. So uh, I switched over and drained the, the auxiliary tank into the ship's tank and got to Aberdeen with no problem. Everything was fine. And Aberdeen was a lovely place and Cochrane was there and gave me lunch and told me that I had to wait for an hour because they were going to go down 30 miles south of there to an airstrip which was held by British. It was a sandbar in the middle of the Mesa River. And they were going to go from there over 10 miles into the jungle where the casualties were waiting. And they were going to tell them to come out of their hiding place, come out of their hiding place and wait for the helicopter which would be there in a little while. And that all happened while I was talking to Cochrane and giving him a free ride when we had an engine failure. Because <laughs> I, I did it wrong. I, mean, I, did, I did it by the book, which is to hover on takeoff. And of course it stopped. It was hot. And he was green. And <laughs> I told him not to worry that we knew. And, you know, and I realized when I was telling him that we knew about this, he said, why didn't you do it right then? <laughs> We took off and he got control of himself and flew it and he kept looking out the window and he couldn't see. We were still over the airstrip going about 60 miles an hour, which is the speed. And he says, where the hell are we? I'm lost. And I pointed down there was the airstrip still. He says, oh my God, he says, in a P-51, you'd be clean over the horizon by now. You know, he says, I've got the big eye. So anyway, that was one adventure, and, and finally the L-5s came back. Oh, everything was okay. Fly to the sandbar airstrip. So I flew there with three L-5 escorts. One was my Pathfinder, who staggered through the air at 65 miles an hour. That was just about stalling speed for him. So it was a good exercise. <laughs> and the other two were photographers. And we got down to the airstrip okay and one of them went off and notified to make sure that Murphy the American pilot was there and ready to get his casualties on board. The reason that Murphy was on the ground and not flying one of the L L1s which is his ship was that he'd gotten shot down. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II. Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. On April 21st, 1944, an American pilot, Staff Sergeant Eddie Hladovchek, a 
guy that everybody just called Murphy, crashed in his L-1 just after picking up three British casualties. Carter Harmon and his helicopter were called on to go out and rescue the four stranded men. The way he tells it, he took off with three casualties on board, one one bad, severe uh, gunshot wound that had ripped out most of his back, and one who had had an arm wound, and the third guy had malaria and was in crisis, or had been in crisis just then. So Murphy got them off the ground and made a steep turn to avoid enemy ground fire, but apparently not steep enough, and took off for the hills to climb over the mountains to get back to Aberdeen. And so that uh, he threw it into low gear. The, the L1 had a, a two-speed propeller, and to climb, you threw it into low. And he threw it into low, and it didn't go into low. And in fact, the airspeed went down, even when he was flying straight and level. And he started a turn at that point, realizing that the engine wasn't going to take him anywhere. And pretty soon, it froze, just stopped. And the oil pressure was zero. So we found a tiny airstrip, well, a tiny field in the jungle, which was far too short to land that plane in, but he was very good, and the plane would land at about 20 miles an hour. It was an amazing aircraft. And he got it on the ground and hit a hole in the ground and ground looped, ripped a wing slightly, but nobody was hurt. So he got them out of there and waited, and pretty soon one of the other ships came along saying, with, with a rock, they threw a rock out with a message on it, saying, stand by, uh, we'll tell you what to do. And they went away and came back and told them to go up on top of the mountain and hide that the helicopter was coming. So that's what they did, and they did that for two days, well, two more days, let's see. That was, I believe, now the dates here are not entirely clear either, but the 21st of April, 1944. And that that day was the night that I got the message, so I couldn't fly in that day. So that was one night. The next day I took off and got as far as Lido and had to wait there to get my battery replaced and the electrical system repaired. And that was the second night. And then I got to Taro. I didn't have fuel enough, and they installed the auxiliary tank, and that was finished too late to go to Aberdeen. So that was the that was the third night. And uh, Murphy was just sitting there all this time. They dropped what they thought was food to him, and it turned out to be cigarettes. <laughs> and they didn't have any water. They were afraid to go to get water because there were Burmese, Burmese villages nearby, and the Burmese were in the control of the Japanese. So they stayed there, and they found water. There were certain plants that you could squeeze, and some of these British knew how to do that. They were all British, all of his casualties. And finally, they got the message to go down and wait for me. And after a while, I turned up there with the three L5s, my air escort circling up above, taking pictures. One of the one of the photographers, a man named Bill Vandervert from Life magazine, and Life must have those pictures in its archives. But they were top secret at the time, and nobody ever saw them. We don't know if they exist or not yet, to this day. And then the Air Force photographer, who got his film loaded backwards. <laughs> so nothing was, no record was kept of this. I mean, not really. But not that they could see very much. 
because they were up above and I was maybe three or four hundred feet down and they didn't want to go very low because there was a roadway right south of this field which had Japanese on it. It was a main road. Dirt. But it was, you know, as Burmese roads went, it was Maine. So I landed. Um, Murphy came rushing out with this guy, sold a fireman's carry, holding him like this. And the guy was dragging three huge, heavy samurai swords, liberated from somebody. And he wouldn't let go of them. And he was heavy. He was already heavy. He was a big man. He had these swords. And Murphy yanks open the door and he says, you look like an angel. So he gets the casualty in, on board and the samurai swords on his lap and the straps all done up and this man is all bloody. The, the bandages were, he bandaged him with parachutes uh, when they picked him up and uh, sprinkled disinfectant of some kind anyway into his wounds, almost keeled out, keeled over himself when he was doing this, when he saw the, the parts inside and uh, said, come back. He says, it's like a Texas hostess. Come back, y'all. <laughs> so I took off and didn't have any trouble. I jumped and we jumped fine and the, followed the, my escorts back to the sandbar where the British were waiting for the casualty and an L5 was sitting there. They carried him out, put him in the L5. The L5 went back to Aberdeen and that night he was ferried back to India and they say he lived. And I went back to pick up the second casualty, and there was no, no particular problem there. Got him back, except that there was a big cloud over on the horizon behind the hill. And I saw that coming. I didn't know whether it was going to hit there, but it did. And meanwhile, when I got on the ground and I had to pour in gas from my jeep tanks, which was the only way I could do it, the engine wouldn't start. Only time it ever didn't start, I think, but it was very, very hot. It was the middle of the afternoon and the hottest part of the day and airless. And so um, by that time, the storm was obviously going to hit us, huge thunderstorm. And by the time it was over, there was about an hour of daylight left. And the British said, you better not do anything tonight, because if you do it, the most you can pick up is one. It's only 10 miles away, but still, uh, the chances of getting back there for a second pickup were pretty slim, and that would leave only one on the ground. And it was better that there were two of them. So I didn't go back, just letting them worry, you know, whether I had crashed. <laughs> and it would never come back. And meanwhile, the Japanese knew they were there or knew something was going on, and they were beating the bushes and yelling and firing off their carbines all over the place. And these guys were hiding under a rock and it was wet under the rock, and they were scared. They were, he said, Murphy said he never slept a blink that night because the Japanese were making too much noise. <laughs> and so in the morning it started fine, and I took off, waited there overnight, I had to, and spent the night with the British in a jungle hammock and uh, picked up the malaria patient and went back and got Murphy, you know, there was, there was no particular problem, except that out from the trees on the eastern edge of this field that I was in, which was sort of slanty and I was cocked at an angle by the last time, 
came a band of men, looked like pirates. They were wearing bandanas around their heads and they had long staves with flags on them, it looked like. I didn't look at them too carefully, I don't know, but I couldn't imagine who they were. And I said, let's get out of here. And we got out and uh, avoided them. When I got on the ground, it turned out they were British and that the people that were the company that was keeping that airstrip had sent them in to walk out the casualties if I didn't get there. They wouldn't have all walked out. They couldn't have all, because two of them were in too bad shape to walk, but they neglected to tell me that their people were there. So I was scared of that. Then I flew back to Aberdeen and sort of fitted into the life there. Aberdeen was a very quiet sort of a country airstrip. It could have been a Sunday afternoon, uh, you know, outside of some town in the west and these light planes taking off and landing every now and then and uh, at night the C-47s came in and unloaded their supplies and so then it turned out that there had been a severe attack on White City. White City was a British blockade that covered the railroad track and the road north and the reason that they wanted to blockade that was that our people, the Americans, wanted to finish a road into China so that they could get supplies to Chiang Kai-shek so that the Japanese would be kept busy there and couldn't send those troops to make more trouble somewhere else. But they were severely attacked and they had to be supplied by air and there were parachutes all over the ground. These two hills that the British were encamped in and they had holes in the ground and they were all covered with parachutes. And that was why it was called White City. So I went over there and I took out two more casualties. I took two British casualties from there, both of them wounded. And the second one took a ring off of his finger and he said, I want you to have this for saving my life. And I said what I thought, which was I was just doing my job. You know, that's what you do. You, I mean, you really don't think, I don't think people think about the significance, the grander significance of little, little things like that. It didn't seem like anything because this, I was flying this wreck of a machine, it seemed by that time, that I was scared of. And I had done something with it that I was supposed to do and I was pleased. I was damn pleased that it happened, that I finally got the mission accomplished. Of course, I was flying the YR-4, which was the very first Allied helicopter in production, and nobody had ever flown it in a combat situation or in a forward area before, and that was known. I mean, there wasn't any question about that. And when the mission came along, I was the only one left to fly it, so I flew the very first helicopter rescue. And I'm not sure, you know, what I, what I thought except that I was pleased that something had been done that was positive. I had experience that nobody else had had. I had flown this damn thing in an area and uh, under conditions that nobody had ever dreamed of it flying in and succeeded, you know, did it. I mean, people say, would I do the same thing again? And I certainly wouldn't because I know too much now. And when you're in your 20s, you think you're gonna live forever. 
you just can't imagine being splashed all over the tarmac or shot in the ass or something, you know, one of these things. We didn't get scared. We just did it and then we got scared. So what do you think you proved that the helicopter could do? Oh, I think it could do exactly what Mr. Sikorsky thought it could do, build it to do, which was to pick up people who couldn't get saved any other way. There was really no hope that all those guys were going to get out of there if I hadn't gone and picked them up. And it was a very good mission for that reason. It was a place that was inaccessible and they weren't going to get out if I didn't take them out. I like that. That felt good. That felt really good. Carter Harmon was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for rescuing Murphy and bringing the others out of the Burmese jungle. After the war, Harmon went on to become a very successful musician and a record producer. But it was his days as a fearless flyer, writing those first pages in the rule book of air rescue, that made it my honor to speak with Carter Harmon and to put this hero of our nation on record. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of In Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by First Person Productions in association with the Documentary Broadcasting Company. The stories told herein were supplied by The Honor Project, produced by David Benson, engineered by Greg Bartheld and Brian Donovan, narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by First Person Productions Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency. On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern-day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and as a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.